Good to see you all here. Um, I've got to say that uh, I'm very excited personally to see uh, Nick coming onto the staff as a pastor. He's going to be an awesome blessing to our church, and hopefully, I trust our church will be a blessing to he and to Emily as well. So it's good. Um, last night, who was there last night? It was, um, it was a good night. It was some spectacularly uh, good acts, and there was some uh, interesting acts. Uh, there was the full range, um, but it was good, and uh, it was great to raise money for a great cause. So uh, we got a good message this morning, and um, uh, I should say, uh, if you're a visitor here, my name's Mark. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, also good to see uh, Nigel and Libby here visiting with us. They're sort of part of the family. It's uh, great to have you guys back. Uh, whenever you come back. Let's open up uh, to Romans chapter 14. As most of you would know, we're working through um, uh, the book of Romans or Paul's letter to the Romans. And we're almost at the end of that journey. Um, but we've got a couple of uh, important messages to go. So Romans 14, and uh, we're just going to read uh, verse 1 through to 19, which is quite long. Um, I'm going to focus mostly on 1 to 12, but we will... Uh, We'll read 1 to 19. So if you've got a Bible, open it up and uh, we'll go through it. Okay. Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever uh, eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord." For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not 
by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Interesting passage. We're going to jump into a a verse I personally love, which is Romans uh, 14 verse 2. Can we bring that up, Tim? Uh, Here it is. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Who's saying amen to that? Josh, next week we have the, the men's night. Have you been hunting for us? Do we have meat to eat? Amen to that, brother. <laughs> so um, I think we can just reflect on that verse for a few minutes and go home. We'll be edified and, uh, and clearly God is, God's word has spoken. I, I was convicted by this word this week. I just went home and said, Mel, we're having steak for tea every night to the glory of God. Um, that's not what it's saying. Um, it seems like a strange verse. It seems like a strange passage. We've got these incredible passages in Romans where Paul is laying out the gospel and it's, uh, it's spectacular and it's, it's profoundly transformational. And we get to practical advice after Romans 12 that, again, is, is very significant. We get to Romans 14. It would be easy to think, well, he's talking about some issues related to their situation in Rome. And what does this really mean to us? The answer is a great deal. Because so many churches get torn apart by disunity disagreement and division over what this passage calls disputable matters. Uh, And the lack of understanding of Romans 14 can have a profound impact on a church and its whole direction and the whole effectiveness of its mission. If some churches grasped Romans 14, they would save themselves a huge amount of pain and conflict and problems. That's how important I think this is. So the question that's really being asked in this chapter is, how do we all get along? How do we get along when we're all so different? Uh, How do we ensure there is unity of vision and mission and purpose and spirit when Every church, including this one, is made up of people who have come from different backgrounds and different churches and different traditions and different denominations and and some from no denomination and some from long-term church backgrounds and some with different theological interests and some with different things that they're passionate about and we all perceive things differently and so how do, we, how do we find unity in the midst of all of that? And how do we work out what's really important and what's not in 
important. I could tell you endless stories of where I've been part of churches that have been torn apart by uh, things that, uh, you know, Romans first 14 verse 1 says, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And I could tell you endless stories about quarreling over disputable matters. I'm going to ask you here, raise your hand if you've been part of a church where there's been a quarrel over a disputable matter. <laughs> And we laugh because we've all been there. I'll show you a couple of stories. In the, the church where I grew up, there came a time when uh, we were a church where we sang only hymns from the hymn book. And the person uh, would put up on the board the, the, the numbers of the hymns and they would be the hymns sung and they would be accompanied by the, the same lady who played the organ every single week and then came people who wanted to sing choruses from some red or blue book, <laughs> brown, green, let's not have an argument over this and so the minister is trying to make this work so he says the the chorus singers can come in for 15 minutes they can play before the song service starts and then he says now we'll have one chorus in but the organist she knew what was happening you know he was just trying to sneak in these new ways so she would play the wrong tune deliberately on the organ <laughs> And eventually, she left the church. And in my next church, the first church where I was a pastor, we had one Sunday where we had some people in our church who were from a Fijian background, and they wanted to uh, allow their uh, children to do some Fijian dancing as, a, as an act of worship. And so the girls who were maybe nine and, and ten years of age got up, and they're wearing grass skirts and coconuts, coconut shells and they did their their dancing and everyone sort of it was a one-off everyone said well that's you know that's good they got to show their tradition and their culture and it was good for them and and one of our elders was incensed because she thought it was entirely inappropriate that we allowed that to happen and so we sit in an elders meeting where most elders go, well, you know, it was, it was a reason for it and it was just a one-off and it was just allowing them to show their custom and it's not a big deal. Well, it was a big deal to this one person. She left the church over that. And I've sat here uh, in my next church where I was a pastor and one Pentecost Sunday I suggested we, we might hang some balloons in church off, I don't know, it was the cross or the pulpit or the something or other. Oh, we tried that a few years ago. We were going to do that. That caused a great hullabaloo to have balloons in church. I'm not sure which verse of Scripture was being referred to about the appropriateness or not of having balloons in church, but these things can cause conflict. And this passage says these are disputable matters. And the Bible is clear there are non-disputable matters. There are indisputable matters if that's the right word there are matters that 
are clearly revealed as being salvation issues or as being black and white, this is right and this is wrong and we're not to uh, just sort of ignore that reality. But we need to be very careful to remember that not everything in church is black and white. And there are many things in church that people grab onto and hold onto that they say this is absolutely right or absolutely wrong or things that people must do or absolutely must not do to be a, a faithful follower of Jesus that is just not biblical. It's bound to tradition and custom and uh, matters of that nature. And when we see division and conflict in a church, and a church can be distracted by, from its mission because of these things, it is just so sad. It is just so sad. So what are some of the disputable matters that I think are mostly of, of the past? And uh, I'm, I'm conscious here because, of course, I might touch on a matter that someone thinks is not disputable, but you'll just have to deal with that this morning. Um, <laughs> women should wear hats in church. I think we're past that one because otherwise we're in trouble. Um, men, sh no, men should not wear a hat in church. Uh, women should wear dresses to church. Hymns are the only songs that should be sung. An and organ is the only instrument that should be played. We should have a choir. You should raise your hands in worship. You must never wait, raise your hands in worship. Uh, Christians shouldn't go to the movies, should not play cards, should not play sport on a Sunday, should not listen to secular music or read secular books or dance or drink coffee or alcohol or laugh or smile <laughs> or any of the above. Yeah, most of those things I think are in the past, thank God. But many of you perhaps have been through some of the wars over whether those things are disputable or not. What are some of the present disputable matters? Now I'm going to be on more nervous ground. Theological issues. A specific view about the end times or at the other direction creation or issues like predestination and free will and the sovereignty of God and spiritual gifts and healing and how God speaks to us today and what role Israel has in God's future. Yes, I said it. Then there's church issues. What songs should we sing or shouldn't we? What should a service look like? How often should we have communion? Should a church be focused in its mission just on evangelism or is social justice part of that or not? Should sermons all be verse by verse exegesis or is topical sermons okay? How long should a service go for or a sermon or should the Bible reading happen before the sermon starts and can people dance during worship? And... Um, Outside of the church, is, should parents be sending their kids to public schools or private schools or Christian schools or home schools? And what age should you let your kids watch certain movies? And what car is appropriate for a Christian to drive? And how much is it appropriate for a Christian to spend on a house? And which political party should a Christian vote for? And which football team should a Christian <laughs> go for? Actually, that one is not a disputable matter. <laughs> I don't know how that one made the list. You see, some of you on those theological issues, probably right there and then, put a stake in the ground and not happy with me for mentioning it. 
But I would suggest to you that even amongst conservative evangelical biblical scholars, each of those matters I mention uh, is one where different respected biblical scholars of an evangelical nature hold competing views. And this passage is written to address how we deal with these matters. So let's get into it. The, the, the crux of it is in verse 1 to 3, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Uh, verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat, treat with contempt, the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them couple of questions at the start of 4, uh, 14 verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant because we're God's servant? And um, verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother and or sister? So it's a lot about judgment. And really the, the crux of this is the strong are not to despise or condemn the weak. And the weak are not to judge the strong. I'll say that again. The strong are not to despise or condemn the weak. And the weak are not to judge the strong. So who is the weak and who is the strong here in Paul's argument? Well, the weak are actually those who have not at this point been able to accept uh, fully that we are completely accepted and saved uh, in Christ by grace and grace alone and there is nothing that needs to be added to that. No custom or tradition or ceremonial requirement that is added to that that is for salvation. The weak are those uh, who are drawn into doing other things and in their mind think that these are required beyond grace for Salvation, the weak are those who are overly influenced by other people who put rules and requirements in place for Christians that are not, in fact, requirements that God has put in place. And it's those often who look the most devout. And Paul, however, describes these as weak in faith. The strong then are those who know that in Christ they are saved and redeemed and set free, and there is nothing that they uh, can or need to do to add to uh, that to gain the grace of God, which is received as a gift by faith alone. They are set free to enjoy all that God has given, to enjoy life without the restrictions of man-made religious rules and regulations. This does not mean there is no such thing as sin and that everything is grey and that Christ Christians should do whatever they want. This issue has been dealt with already extensively by Paul in Romans. Romans 6, 1-2 says, What shall we say then in, in light of this freedom in grace? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But this deals with the matters that are not revealed in Scripture and are not clearly proclaimed as being matters of right or wrong, salvation or not salvation, uh, but are disputable matters. Um, the two examples Paul gives is about people who, one person eats meat and one person eats 
doesn't eat meat, this is not about vegetarianism or veganism or whether those things are right or wrong. This is most likely about Jewish uh, Christians, people who have come out of the Jewish faith, who are still continuing to, to follow the food practices of, of the Jewish faith, even, even though they're now believers. And so you've got the church where you've got Jewish Christians who have come out of, or, or who have become believers from a Jewish tradition, Gentile Christians, and the Gentiles aren't observing any of these practices. Some of the Jewish Christians have let go of these, but others are still holding on to them. So the first example is about the weak are those doing something while the strong are those not doing something. The other in verse 5 is the reverse. Uh, one person is uh, observing a sacred day, a particularly sacred day. The other person, the strong, considers every day alike. So it's about, in this case, the, the Jewish people most likely who are still following the uh, festivals and the, the Sabbath days of the Jewish religion. And the Gentile believers who are considered the strong in this case, who are, are not doing that. But the basic principle is, uh, hey, if you're the one who is, is following some practice or doing something out of a conviction of faith, then do it for the glory of God, but don't judge those who don't do it. You know, uh, just looking around here, we, we don't tend to, I don't think, I can't, I can't see anyone here who's wearing a suit, okay? But when I grew up in my church, there was still some people, I think even in the first church I was a pastor, some older gentlemen who would dress up in a suit and wear that to church. Now, clearly they thought that an act of worship for them or an act of honour or respect was to put on a suit and wear that to church. And this passage would say, let that person do that. And if that person wears a suit to God as an act of honour, as an act of showing respect and, and, you know, wanting to sort of do the right thing, if they're doing that in their heart, let them do it. Fantastic. Uh, don't show contempt to that person in any way because of their choice. But equally, if you're that person, you've got, to, you've got to realize in Scripture there's nothing about wearing a suit to church and you need to look around and make sure you're not saying and getting consumed with this issue of how these, uh, these young people wearing their shirts untucked or something like that. One of the interesting things, uh, I heard a story of someone who when they first came to this church, uh, they came into the night service and they looked around and, and they noticed this one young lad and, and he was wearing no shoes, board shorts and a t-shirt. And they said, well, I reckon that's, that's pretty cool that these young people feel comfortable to wear no shoes, board shorts and a t-shirt to church. And then that same young person got up and was the person preaching that Sunday. <laughs> I said, well, I think that's still okay. And they discovered that was Kurt, the preacher. So it's a good thing. Uh, do not judge others who do not hold convictions about how they should live out their faith. And do not despise those who do things and value things and believe things that are not essential to the Christian life or faith. The basic question to ask is, is this a salvation issue? Is it a salvation issue? No. Is this a black and white issue in Scripture? If the answer is no, uh, uh, then in the words of Elsa from Frozen, 
I've never said that before in a sermon. Let it go, okay? Let it go. Um, Let it go. You know, it might be something you struggle with. You might struggle with someone doing something in church or making a choice or going off to a certain conference or I don't know, just lots of different stuff. And and the Bible will guide us. There's going to be stuff that's unhelpful. Maybe someone's reading a book or following a preacher and and you might have a a concern about that or or they're they're teaching or something like that. And if you're a mature Christian, maybe you want to humbly and gently speak into that. But you've got to be very careful that you don't make the black and white call on this and that therefore you approach it with maturity and gentleness and carefulness rather than treating it like it's uh, a matter that is uh, not for dispute. Let me give you three points here. Um, Actually, I'll read the message. Message verse 1 started it like this. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. So the three points I want to bring out here. The first is, is acceptance should be the defining quality of Christian people. Acceptance should be the defining quality of Christian people. We should be defined by our gentleness, our humility, our willingness to listen, and our ability to love people in all circumstances. When people walk into this church, the question is, what is the, the atmosphere? What sense do they give, especially if they look or are a bit different to us? Do we accept people as our defining and primary quality? Too often Christians have been so strongly wanting to be bearers of right practice or, or upholders of you know, the right Christian behaviour that we almost force that upon people very quickly and judge people and be known for our judgment, not our acceptance. Now, this is tricky because there are matters that the Bible clearly says are right and are wrong. And it's not that, again, I've said this and I'll say it again, that we're called to just let everything go and just say, well, we don't, we're not meant to call sin, you know, virtue. But we are meant to be accepting of people. And find that space where we can accept people. We can hold our convictions about right and wrong without judging and condemning a person. We can still love and accept them as people made in God's image and loved by Him. Jesus Jesus never tolerated sin. He never said, not a problem, don't worry about it, it's all good. Yet somehow, sinful people... In fact, those who were in the society that he was in, most on the fringe because of their behavior, were drawn to him and he welcomed them. And we should do the same. We should certainly do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Secondly, this passage says we should leave the judgment to God. We should leave the judgment to God says in verse 9, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So the question here is, who's actually the judge? And the answer is, God is the judge. 
And, and so there's God and there's a person. And, and somehow Christians have too often wanted to jump into the place of God and become the judge and act like the judge. We've actually got to let God be the judge that he is and actually leave him to be the judge. Uh, when we leave room for God to be the judge, God in his grace will often do a work in people's heart and actually bring them to a point of conviction in time. D does that make sense? So where we might come in and we might crush someone and say, you know, what you're doing is, is wrong and you need to change your ways and this is not on and we can speak a word that is very condemning in the nature we say it. But actually if we are accepting and gentle, then actually God has still got time to work on people. God's working by His Spirit and by His Word and He might actually in time lead someone to be convicted or something. Of, of something and actually change because they've actually, it's become a matter between them and God, not you stepping in to try and be God. Okay? Now, this is, this is tricky because there is times to speak. There is times to speak in love. Okay? The Bible does says, correct one another, as much as it also says, accept one another. Okay? But the principle here is about not trying to be the judge and allowing God to be a judge. Leave the judgment to God. Uh, I would suggest that there would be people in this room who could give testimony to the fact that at one time or another, people gave them a grace to actually work something through and in time, their life and their behavior and their action changed as they came to recognize that something they were doing was not glorifying God and they repented of it and changed. So that's the second point. The third thing is this, work hard to remain united. Now, there's a basic Baptist principle called freedom of conscience. And if you've never come from a, a Baptist upbringing, you're probably not familiar with this, but it's very important. In fact, the atmosphere in this church is influenced by this traditional Baptist concept of freedom of conscience, which basically says we can agree to disagree and still be brother and sister in Christ. This is foundation of uh, founded on this this chapter really but uh, as good as that is this passage tells us to go further than simply agreeing to disagree it actually says that we should do everything we can not to cause conflict and to help our brother or sister have a look at verse 13 it says let us stop passing judgment on one another but then it goes further instead make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. What it says is, uh, and it's really interesting here, there's this extraordinary act of graciousness that Paul expresses in this verse. Verse 14 and 15, he says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. He couldn't put it more, more clearly. But... If anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. And if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. So it's kind of like this. He's saying, there's no way that there's anything in Bible that, that, that says, you know, you shouldn't eat meat. However, if you've got a brother or sister who is convinced that that, that is the right thing, you're inviting them over for a dinner don't cook steak. Do what you can to actually maintain 
unity and harmony, even if that's actually taking a step to the position where you're going to kind of think about being very careful about how you might act around them in a way that doesn't cause a conflict in your relationship. Now, this is very tricky as well in practice, because if we all start doing the very thing that, you know, someone thinks, then um, we might lose our freedom, okay? We, we used to have someone came to this church for a while who believed uh, a direct, literal application of the Corinthians, I think it's the Corinthians passage, women should cover their head in church. So, you know, according to this verse, maybe all the women need to start covering their heads in church because otherwise it might be a stumbling block to her attending. Do you get what I'm saying? So it gets kind of confusing. Um, but I think the principle is clear. The principle is here. It's not about primarily trying to exercise your freedom. It's about trying to work hard to maintain unity. The conclusion is in verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And I think that's clear enough point. So let me, uh, let me get personal here. Let me say this. Firstly, I want to affirm, what I want to do is affirm us, affirm, you, affirm us, affirm you as a church. I'll do that personally. As a pastor, from the first day until now, that I and Mel and our family came into this church, you have given us freedom to be ourselves. You have never placed expectations upon me <clears throat> about what I need to do and what a pastor looks like. You've never expected me to be like any other pastor, as if I could try and be like Colin Rolfe's. <laughs> You've never expected me to be like him or us, any other pastor. You've never expected Mel to say, this is what a pastor's wife has to do, to be a pastor's wife. You've never said to my kids, pastor's kids are meant to do this. You have accepted us and you've given us freedom to be ourselves. And for that, we are very grateful. Secondly, I see across this church a wonderful gift in accepting others. That I believe this church lives out this passage really beautifully. And we hear again and again and again from people who come into this church for the first time, checking this church out, considering it. They say, I don't know what it is, but I feel at home here. It's only my first week here, but I feel like it's home. It's got a feeling of being home. And that's because of acceptance and love. We need to continue to pursue uh, what's spoken of in this passage so that we continue to love and accept people. Finally, I want to say this. The strength of our leadership in this church, and perhaps one of the great strengths of this church over the last I don't know how many years, certainly the time that I've been here, is that there is a wonderful spirit of unity in leadership. And I want you to know that because most of you don't get to see what happens in an elders meeting or a council meeting or, or how we go. But within those meetings, I can tell you there is a wonderful unity that does not exist because we all believe the same things. There are different understandings about matters of theology Matters of practice, uh, even which football team we go for, <clears throat> or don't care less about football. 
But our unity comes in our willingness to put aside personal preference and to be able to be wise and discerning about what is a disputable matter and what isn't and to pursue unity through that. There's been a saying that one of our former elders used to say often, which is, well, this is my view, but this is not a hill that I'm going to die on. I'm not going to put the stake in the ground here and allow that to be an issue that causes division. I'll express my view, but if the strength of the meeting is towards this, then we accept that and we move on. And I've seen people who hold radically different views, and at times there's a little bit of pressure or a little bit of struggle between different theological positions, be united together in deep, mutual love and concern for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. May that continue. The point here is this, as I finish up, and can the band come up because we'll go into our last song. We are on the same team, always. We are fighting for the same cause. We are worshipping the same God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we get to heaven, we'll be worshipping around the throne, the same God together. What a great concern that will be for those who say you can't raise your hand or you can raise your hand or the people who don't have a hymn book to look through. They've got their singing choruses. We're going to have to deal with that. So let's deal with it on earth because we're going to deal with it in heaven. And in the end, so much energy can go into things that don't really matter. The church instead is to put its energy into being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, a city on a hill, a beacon of hope, a place of refuge, a compassionate community, the expression of God's love, a glimpse of heaven here on earth. So let us continue to join together in unity of purpose and vision and mission in love for the cause of Christ. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.